Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I am privileged each week to be your host and interviewer on what is now Franklin Covey's second podcast. You may recognize me as the host of what is now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast called On Leadership with Franklin Covey, also a podcast focused on topics around building culture, building systems, creating efficient and effective workers, making sure that everyone understands their role in the culture of an organization. After four years and 250 nearly episodes, what we learned is, is that although we had the privilege of interviewing some of the world's most influential people, people like Seth Godin and Liz Wiseman, Susan Cain, Dan Pink, Ariana Huffington, Matthew McConaughey, and on and on and on and on and on, Deepak Chopra, what we realize is oftentimes the most downloaded and, and uh, reviewed episodes were not always the biggest celebrity, but people like you and I that had done remarkable things, had major accomplishments, but that perhaps they were a little bit more relatable and we could take tangible nuggets away from them. So we launched this new podcast called C-Suite Conversations. And today our guest is Clara Shai. She currently serves as the CEO of the Salesforce Service Cloud. She also is the founder and executive chair of Hearsay, joining us from Oakland, California today. Clara, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, it's great to be here. I'm delighted to have this conversation because you are perhaps one of the most qualified CEOs we've had on the podcast because your resume and academic uh, profile is awesome. While you were earning a 1400 plus on your SAT in eighth grade, I was earning the Good Citizen Award from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Oh, no, wait. I didn't earn that till 12th grade. But I mean, it really is a remarkable journey between your time at Oxford and Stanford, your, your, your time at some of the most major influencers in the technology world. Would you check your ego and kind of rewind back to eighth grade and talk a little bit about your upbringing, your academic uh, uh, accomplishments? I'm interested to hear them depressing and inspiring, and talk a little bit about some of the highlights of your career, and we'll get into what you're so passionate about in current times. You are hilarious. Um, thank you for doing your research. I barely remember eighth grade, but um, I, I'm an immigrant from Hong Kong. My family came in 1986 when I was four, and it's just, it's the classic American dream story. Our family started over, and for my brother and me, we knew that it was really up to us. We would have to earn our way um, to our future and we had big dreams. And so worked really hard, played also really hard and had a very loving family. We still have a very loving family. We're very close. And we went to public school K to 12. And in, in, in high school, I saw the cover issue of Business Week it was about Silicon Valley, the dot-com boom. And here I was senior in high school and my eyes just lit up and I said, you know, I'm this math and science geek and Silicon Valley is for me. And so I decided there and then that I would apply to Stanford and I came out West and I've pretty much been here ever since. Um, so that's how I, I ended up in tech was really influenced by, by what was happening in the world and, and reading about it in this magazine at the, the grocery checkout aisle. That was a major trunk truncation of a remarkable career. Talk about your time in Oxford. You know, to us, Oxford, I actually lived in Oxfordshire for a year in England, did not attend Oxford. Living in Oxford is not attending Oxford. Talk about the experience of, of graduating, I believe, with an electrical engineering degree or something like that in, in Oxford. Talk about your time uh, in Oxford. 
Sure. So Stanford was all about computer science and engineering. And you can imagine being there in the early 2000s, right? Google was still a startup. It was it was a fascinating experience. And for me, you know, I, I put myself through school. So I worked throughout the summers and also during the school year. It actually helped me a lot right in my career later on, just because I had a head start out of necessity. Um, as I was getting close to graduation, I wasn't ready to, to go to work, right? I wasn't ready to go full time. And I felt like I had spent so much of my undergrad years um, working to pay, pay, pay for school that I wanted, I wish I had taken more classes and more time to pontificate and to, and to intellectualize and, and be less applied and less worried about money, for example. And so I applied for a Marshall scholarship and it gave me time to take a year to go to Oxford and get a second master's degree in, in education, actually. I got my master's degree in education, but I also worked with the Oxford Internet Institute. And what I did that year was I read a lot and I wrote a lot and I thought a lot about how technology and the internet would change society and change relationships. And, and that set, see, at the time seemed like such a detour from from you know really gunning it and and going for my career, but actually in retrospect, completely changed my life and resulted in in the career that I've had right because from there, um, you know working at Google um, in business operations and strategy, joining Salesforce.com the first time when I, when I was in my twenties, just as the consumerization of IT was happening right everyone wanted the same easy internet experiences from their work applications as they were experiencing in their personal lives. And then from there, uh, really getting the idea around social selling and this idea that social media would shift, would continue to shift trust away from large institutions toward peer-to-peer relationship-centric um, types of systems and founding a company that, you know, hearsay that has, that has really operationalized that for hundreds of thousands of relationship managers from Allstate to Wells Fargo to New York Life. Um, and then after 11 years as CEO and founder of Hearsay, doing something that I never thought I would do, which is take a career pause. And you know, March 2020 changed so many of our lives. And it was the hardest decision, one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make stepping down from a fantastic company that I had founded and so much of my identity was wrapped up in and deciding to stay at home and homeschool my son, um, who was five and a half at the time. And, and really, in retrospect, so glad that I did that. And as schools went back in person, I'm um, getting recruited back to Salesforce and now leading the largest cloud at Salesforce. It's a remarkable journey. Uh, much of it was spent focused on social media and helping people and companies understand how to leverage social media. Let's talk about that. Specifically, Claire, in the C-suite, do you think the majority of the Fortune 5000, the Inc. 5000, those are different uh, monikers I know, do you think the C-suite fully understands the influence and the power that social media plays on their connection to customer, their how they, how they message their values, their mission, their their social conscience? And, and what should the C-suite know about the, the go-forward impact of this constantly changing landscape that is social media, everything from TikTok to Instagram to LinkedIn to all of that? 
You know, I think it's shifted a lot um, in terms of C-suite's understanding of social media and just the profound implications on society. I'd say in the last five years, just given what's happened in society and movies like The Social Dilemma and I think calls for more regulation, there's more awareness around the, the, the incredible power and also the the, the dark underbelly that uh, of and the risk of social media. And so I think there is more broad awareness. Um, in terms of how social media can be harnessed and really needs to be respected by companies, um, C-suites and boards. I'd say that, you know, we've made a lot of progress, but still, you know, many leaders don't, haven't fully internalized what it means to really engage in this always on news cycle and to participate, right? There's both positive moments and also this need to quickly and wisely react without overreacting to crises that that trend very, very quickly in today's social media. So I'd say I think we're still on that learning curve and there's a lot of opportunity. Well, to that point, Clara, with the rise and fall in relevance or popularity of uh, platforms, right? You've got LinkedIn, which is a fairly stable platform. People are still, I think, forming opinions that change weekly about Facebook. You've got TikTok that was on the rise and demonized by the last um, administration and now seems to be uh, I don't know, finding their place. Any advice you would give organizations on how to build a, a sustainable, cogent social strategy and a fairly um, evergreen up and down of different platforms? Yes, so absolutely, right? Because here, what's happening in the consumer space is that young people will discover a new platform, like they discovered Facebook 15 years ago. They'll go on it, and then the moment that their parents and their grandparents get on, They'll want to go find the next thing, right? And then that gave rise to Instagram and then Snapchat and then TikTok. And this is just going to continue because the fundamental truth is that young people don't want to be on the same platform as their parents. So what does this mean for companies? Well, I think it's easier for B2B companies, right? Because B2B companies are mostly dealing with adults. And um, so LinkedIn, I think that's why LinkedIn has been so stable. And the engagement on LinkedIn has just continued to, to skyrocket. So much easier if you're a B2B company. For consumer brands, right, this is where it gets tricky and it's so important to stay up on what young people are doing because even if your current customers aren't on the platform, it's just a, it's a matter of time. And so, you know, I always tell leaders, right, there's really four things you have to do. You know, be, grow, hear, and say. And this is also why I named my company Hearsay. So one is you have to be findable. You have to be present and you have to be on the platforms to listen to what's being said about your company, good or bad, by just a pulse check on the brand. Grow, grow your network, grow your influence. And you can do this through earned ways, as well as um, paid you know, advertising to grow the influence, grow the number of followers, grow the number of mentions. And this is, you know, we're seeing this is even more important now than traditional advertising on you know, TV, radio, um, print or billboard. Three is, is to hear, right? It's, it's really to listen on a continuous basis to what's being said about your brand and what's happening in the lives of your customers. And then say that that's, you know, having a provocative or exciting product launch um, to share thought leadership, to uh, feature an influencer, maybe a celebrity, celebrity that's just started working with your company. So it's really those four steps, be findable, um, grow your influence, hear what's happening and continuously listen, and then say and ha have, a, have a brand voice that resonates with your audience. 
super valuable. I don't want to pigeonhole you as only being relatable to social media, but I want to ask you a hypothetical question. Let's just say you'd come back from your sabbatical, you'd not chosen to join Salesforce, and you decided to fashion yourself as a social media coach to the C-suite around the nation. What advice would you give to C-suite leaders about what they should be doing with their own social media, not just their companies, but their own Twitter handle, their own LinkedIn? Do you think that there's a, a rise in value of of clients, potential clients, customers, the world's being able to listen to the CEO of Salesforce or the CEO of Marriott or the CMO of Nike? Should, in your opinion, should executive level leaders have their own social presence and how does it relate to the brand? Should it be independent? Give us some broad advice because quite frankly, I don't think most people my age or older that are in executive positions are very active on social. I'm actually a bit of an outlier. I tend to use LinkedIn, like I use Facebook. I post a lot of my life on LinkedIn and I get a lot of compliments and some vitriol. What coaching would you give to the C-suite around how they should use their own social media? Well, it really depends on the company and it depends on the executive, right? Because the key thing about social media and just this age that we live in is that customers and your employees demand authenticity. And so if it's not something that feels authentic and natural, probably not a good fit. Now, that being said, I think there's a, I, I meet a lot of leaders who have something to say, they just don't know how to get it out there. And, you know, there's, there's really a, a few different tips and tricks that I like to guide people. You know, first is to think about not just having long form content, but mixing it up, right? I think I've seen some leaders do a really good job sharing long thought leadership posts. And that's really important especially for companies hiring professionals who want to understand not only what the company's strategy is, but who is this leader that I'm coming to work for? What do they stand for? Right? What, what kind of person, what kind of leader are they? And because that's going to impact me in my career. So long form is important, but I think short form, there's this expectation now for from anyone who's Gen Y and younger, that it's not just a once, once a quarter press release or once a quarter blog post, they, they expect frequent communications. That's what their personal interactions have trained them to want and need in many cases. And so, you know, we, I think this is why we've seen so much growth in the adoption of Slack, which is, you know, a company that, that Salesforce acquired during the pandemic was this, you know, frequent, short, often async communication helps people stay in line with and, and, and stay connected to what's happening without having to sit in a super long meeting or reading a real a three-page blog post. And then third is the use of the full set of media. It's not just about text. You know, how do you how do we include engaging photos and videos and, and podcasts to help mix things up and keep things interesting, especially at a time when we have a lot of professionals who are working from home. Last question on social. You mentioned Slack. Would would you offer an opinion on, say someone from the C-suite is listening to this podcast right now, because they are by the tens of thousands, and they're not sure if they should continue their company newsletter, they should stay on Slack, or they should be you know, uh, growing their LinkedIn or some other social platform, because they want to use it as a not just a public communication tool, but an internal communication tool so that everybody with, that's within the company, vendors, suppliers, employees as well, know what they're thinking. Do you see relevance in the C-suite's social platform as also an internal communication tool to their team members throughout their organization? 
Absolutely. I mean, this is what I do. When I have a message that I really want my organization to understand, I I hit it up from everywhere, right? I record videos. I post about it on Slack. I post about it on LinkedIn and Twitter. I send an email about it. I talk about it in company meetings. I mean, people need to hear messages seven times for it to really internalize. And when you do that and you're consistent and you use multiple different formats and media, you're more likely to reach, you know, the full set of audience that you want. Okay, let's talk about social responsibility. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't wanna say it's the wild west, but I kinda can't keep my finger on the pulse of what's happening with uh, uh, new hires, what people are looking for, whether it's the great resignation or the great reevaluation or the quiet quitting or whatever is the latest buzz term to keep people invested on reading people's social media. What are you finding that the incoming talented prospective employee is looking for in their new organization? We hear now it's still sort of like a, a buyer's market, so to speak, in terms of employees interviewing their company as much as the company is interviewing them. What advice would you give to hiring leaders, whether they're frontline or mid-level or executive level in terms of what new employees are looking for in their leader and the culture of their future organization? It's such an important question, right? We're in, in this unprecedented tight labor market and it's really, it's a buyer's market, it's an employee's market. And so more than ever, leaders and managers have to you know, really understand, again, as I was saying earlier, it's not just what the company does, but how the company does it. And what kind of leader is this person? Is it someone who invests in in growing talent? Is it someone who um, is, is unafraid to stand behind their values and their beliefs? Um, is it someone who really leads from the front? And also in these times, right, is it someone who knows how to engage in social media and, and digital formats to keep remote and hybrid employees engaged? Right? This, it's, it's really been a challenge during the pandemic and post. Flip that conversation. Uh, as a hiring leader, which you are, Perhaps your span of control is small now as the CEO of Salesforce Cloud, but you've obviously hired and interviewed thousands of people over your career. In 2022 and beyond, what are the top three or four skills that you look for when you onboard new candidates? And I recognize they would be different in the C-suite than they would be the front line, but generally speaking, when you're, when you're setting the imperative for the types of skills that Salesforce is onboarding for, give us the top four or five, three or four or five. You know, some of these are just tried and true, right? Is, is someone, you know, really, again, a great manager and invested in growing talent? Because that's the only way in this job market that we'll be able to attract and retain the very best talent in the market. So that that's always been true. I think it's even more pronounced given the labor dynamics right now. I think the second one is, does this individual know how to communicate and engage in this new era, right? Both because of the fact that a lot of employees are working remotely, as well as because of the, the expectations, the new expectations from younger employees, does this person realize and, and, not, and know that having a newsletter go out once a quarter is not how you engage employees? Having a, a Zoom call once a month is not how you engage employees. In this era, it's leadership more than ever is more of a ground game than an air game. You don't just drop your announcement and then move on. You, you really make sure that 
every level of the organization is engaged, it's internalizing, is participating, is sharing a voice and able to influence the company's strategy and the plan. And so th I think that's been the biggest shift. And again, it's both generational, exacerbated by the fact that we're not we're all not, no longer in the office together five days a week. And so I think that's absolutely critical. And then the third is just given the the rising, the acceleration of black swan events from Russia to the supply chain disruption to inflation and re recession, it's just been this non-stop non onslaught of black swan events. I look for leaders who are critical thinkers, right? Not just able to execute and grow business when it's business as usual, but really able to, to see around corners, anticipate and to react. Uh, that was a masterclass in, uh, in interviewing skills. Uh, let's talk about your leadership style. I ask this question occasionally to our guests, but I wanna ask it of you. And I think it'll be most beneficial for you to show enormous um, transparency here. If, how many direct reports do you have at Salesforce? I have four. Lucky you, that's genius. I mean, usually back in the 2000s, I have 12, or I'm getting it from 16 down to 10. You have four, that's your choice, genius of you. If it I was, was not this way when I arrived, but I have, I, I think it's, it's the perfect span of control. Is four. And if I was to interview those four people, what's the overarching compliment that they would pay about your leadership style? And I'm gonna ask you to share the opposite. What would be the biggest critique they would have around your area of growth? Tell us what they would say you do well. Well, I just returned from maternity leave, so I haven't been working with all of them for a tremendous amount of time. But based on my 360 feedback, both at Salesforce as well as previously at Hearsay, I would say that my superpower that others have told me is I'm able to, to articulate a bold and exciting vision for the future and to rally teams, both people who directly report into me as well as other teams and customers and partners and the ecosystem around that vision. I mean, that's how we created the social selling category at Hearsay and, and grew that. And that's how it's at Salesforce, we're really delivering this, this, this idea, this mission of complete service from digital service to the contact center to field. Well, I think you have lots of superpowers for the record, but thank you for your humility. Okay, flip that for me. If they were gonna critique you courageously on an area they really need you to grow or mature in terms of your leadership, what would it be? You know, it's so interesting. It's different. I, I got different feedback at Salesforce versus at my startup. And part of the reason was just the size of the organizations, right? A few hundred versus 80,000 employees. But I think a, and the other big part that, that people have pointed out was that I started at Salesforce in the middle of the pandemic in December, 2020, before there were any vaccines. And I actually wasn't allowed to meet any of my people in person. And you know, so the feedback from Salesforce has really been around engagement and feeling like people can get to know me and build that deep personal relationship, which wasn't really ever an issue at my startup, probably also because I hired each person, but that we were also together in the trenches five days a week, actually often more than five days a week, working on weekends together. And so at Salesforce for me, it's been really trying to understand and, and evolve my leadership style to say, how do I really let people get to know me? And especially now that things are reopening and we're going back into the office a couple of days a week, giving people that opportunity to really get to know me as a, as a person. 
Claire, I think I wrote a post or read a post that you put on, on LinkedIn recently about burnout. And I think it spoke to something like 84% of leaders talked about how burnout is a real issue in their own life. I'm surprised it's so low. What are you doing on your own team, perhaps your broader team of four, the broader team, a couple levels down, to recognize that, to embrace about it, to talk about it? You, you, you have massive responsibility as still the chair of hearsay. You're on, I believe, are you on Starbucks board? Yes. That's like, oh yeah, and by the way, she's on the board of directors at Starbucks and you are you know, in the C-suite at Salesforce. What are you doing to help to progress this important conversation around burnout, recognizing that we still have to perform and grow and deliver results to our shareholders? What's the nexus there of someone who's in a very public role like you are to talk about and acknowledge burnout, perhaps even in your own life? You were privileged enough to be able to take a sabbatical and have the resources and perhaps a spouse also that could provide you that opportunity. Not everyone has that, but talk about burnout uh, any way you'd like. Yeah, it's a, it's a critical issue. And it's something, again, it needs to be top of mind for every leader and manager today because of, of, the, of these, this constant onslaught of, of stress. And really, there, there's just so much that you know, a typical employee is having to deal with in terms of cognitive load, as well as what might be happening at home, uh, not to mention that COVID is still very much around. And so for me, what it means is, you know, number one, from an air game perspective, what are the company's policies around supporting employees who, who need to take some time? That's something I'm really thankful for at Salesforce is that, you know, employees who need to, they're able to go and take a medical leave. They're able to take time to take care of themselves, to take care of their loved ones, to address, you know, mental health issues that they have. And that's encouraged. Um, I think that's really important. Two is that the ground game of it is making sure that frontline managers are having those check-in conversations and, and not just launching directly into business issues and tasks, but taking the time to build that personal relationship and to check in on a periodic basis, um, especially when there's something that's gone wrong. That just those EQ, um, intel relational intelligence skills and making sure that we're training and coaching first-time managers, we've got a lot of those, as do many companies, so that they can feel supported uh, to be able to have those types of conversations with their employees. So I think those are, are two critical areas. And then third is just, is, you know, recognizing that, you know, it's it's not just about the short-term product deliverable. It's playing the long game of, you know, I might see less output now, but if I invest in this employee, then long-term they'll be much more loyal and they'll, they'll stay with our company longer. And so that it, there are hard business metrics behind it. Clara, this has been a riveting conversation. I, you know, literally for a living, I interview rock stars, people who are the best in the industry, number one best-selling books, superstars, CEOs of companies. You obviously have a remarkable grasp of not just technology, but culture in companies. You're a mom, you're a spouse, you're a partner, you're a board member, you're a founder, you're an investor. Uh, was there a person in your life that had a, a disproportionate impact on you as a transition figure? How did you... Who, whom are the people that perhaps ignited the genius in you early on to have this remarkable career that's clearly far from entering its crescendo? You're very kind for saying that. Um, I think my secret has been I, I learn from almost everybody that I meet. Mm. I think that I really do. I really try to understand their story 
And I find inspiration from pretty much everybody that I meet. And so early on for me, that was my parents, all that they gave up, leaving our very comfortable life in Hong Kong to come to a brand new country where no one recognized their degrees and they didn't speak the language and just the humility. I mean, talk about checking their ego at the door. What they did for my brother and me really and has been continues to be my biggest source of inspiration. And as I continue to grow up, just role models that I would see on TV, I remember Connie Chung, she was one of the few Asian American women who was a public figure. That was really inspiring to me and for me to say, I can go from where I am now to whatever I aspire to. And then more recently, I've had fantastic mentors, um, women like Sheryl Sandberg, who um, referred me to take her board seat at Starbucks when she was stepping off and looking for ways now for me to pay it forward to the next generation of leaders. You're also an author of several books and a frequent communicator online. It's been a delight. Clara, thanks for joining us today. You serve as the uh, CEO of Salesforce Cloud Service. You are also the founder and executive chair of Hearsay, board member at Starbucks, mom to two, am I right? Just a newborn, is that right? Yes. Well, tell us what's next for you. Well, like I said, I just came back to work um, after my maternity leave and I'm really enjoying it. And there's a lot of work to be done um, because every company in the world, every organization has customer service and there's so much happening right now in terms of AI and automation and the ability to, to harness those innovations to free up customer support um, professionals time to focus on higher order problem solving. And so that's, that's really where I'm focused right now. Claire Shai, thank you for joining us today on C-Suite Conversations. Thank you. And we'll see you back, back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.